today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. City Council today is going to have to make a decision uh, about the vacancy on Ward 7. That, of course, is the vacancy that was created when Donna Skelly uh, was elected in this last provincial election. Uh, it needs to be filled, they say, uh, by a certain period of time, August 25th, and here we are, right, just a couple of days away from that. And this is the last council meeting today, so they're going to have to do a couple of things here. Uh, a number of people are suggesting how this might be done. Uh, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger has been on the show and addressed this on a couple of different issues. He's of the feeling that the seat should just remain vacant. Uh, I mean, we are heading towards an election in just a couple of months. Larry Deany, former Hamilton mayor, joins us on the Bell Kelly Show to give us his read on what's going on. Larry, thanks so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. My pleasure, Bill. Uh, and I thought council already made this decision. They decided to keep the seat vacant. Well, I thought, I thought so, too. But now I'm hearing that there may be another motion, that they're bowing to pressure from some sources to say maybe we, we need to fill this after all, uh, which is not unusual for this council. Well, or maybe any council that likes to revisit things and change things up. I mean, we're witnessing that at the provincial level where decisions have been made and uh, now they've been nixed and uh, there are always ramifications to that. In this case, um, in this case, we've got a rule uh, by the province uh, that says essentially, look, council, whenever there's a vacancy, you have a set period of time uh, by which you must fill that vacancy and you really have a choice of how you do that. You can have a by-election, you can have an appointment, or you can have a selection process. I think those are the three methods, But and council has done that in the past, um, except that we find ourselves in this strange transition period where a decision has to be made by August 25th, which is a few days away, as you said, but there's an election in October, and so there are very few council meetings uh, that um, uh, would uh, would be impacted by a, a new presence on council, and uh, and a whole bunch of expenditure uh, for the next number of months because this person would stay on the payroll not only uh, until the election in October but until the swearing in of the new council sometime after that, and so consequently council has said I think rightly look we're looking after the um, the administrative issues as they come up because. Councilor Skelly's staff is still in place looking after things. There is some political cover should that be required uh, because this is a ward sandwiched in between two other wards up on the mountain. So you've got Councilor Whitehead and Councilor Jackson, both very experienced. And you've got the mayor who's willing to step in. And I remember doing that when I was in the chair. And uh, Councilor uh, Ferguson, Murray Ferguson, took ill for a period of time. Uh, we stepped in and we sort of looked after things. I, I remember Councillor Bain was on a bereavement leave as well when her husband died. Uh, I was a councillor at the time and we stepped in. Uh, it was my neighboring ward. So I think common sense at this point says leave well enough alone and uh, and cover things as they are and let the people decide in a few short months who the actual representative is. And there are lots of people running up there. Um, you know, there's some small business people. There are a few women running. There are uh, people from uh, the Labour Party. So, you know, there, there is going to be a legitimately elected person there in the next little while. So leave things alone. Will council do that? I don't know. 
Well, and I, I think the key element, as you've alluded to here, Larry, is timing. Uh, because there is a history on this. When when Bernie Morelli passed away some time ago, and of course they appointed uh, former Hamilton Mayor Bob Morrow, and because there, there's still a lengthy amount of time left in that term of council, and 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 Bob, of course, I think that did, did a great job filling in and uh, uh, for that job, but, and he did it on the proviso that look, I'm not running for the seat. I'm just going to make sure things get done. But you're, you're absolutely right. I think if I looked in the calendar here, I believe there are only two city council meetings even scheduled between now and the election after today. Uh, and and you as and I both know that at this time in 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 a council term, most of those meetings are really just for housekeeping. There's nothing major going on. They're not going to vote on the LRT or any. None of that stuff is going to happen. Uh, and the the work that needs to be done is done 95 percent of the time by staff anyway, and that staff's there. Indeed, and in fact, um, uh, you know, council right now is focused on the election. Um, uh, candidates vying for the seat are focused on getting elected. Council is uh, focused on staying elected. And so the, yeah, that's understandable. I mean, it's only human nature that, you know, when, when you're fighting for your job, that's what you're focused on. Now, they will go through and meet and deal with issues that need to be dealt with. But uh, frankly, I think uh, most of us uh, at this stage of the game are happy to punt things over to the new council. And I know just at this week's committee meeting, there are a couple of major issues that have been punted over to when the new council will reconvene for actual decision-making. So it would be simply filling a seat for the sake of filling a seat as opposed to any meaningful, uh, impactful um, uh, representation uh, or any lack of uh, attention uh, to any constituent needs that might be there. Now, that's not saying that, and you know, Terry Anderson's name has been uh, uh, certainly bandied about, and both you and I know Terry, and he would do a great job. But Terry's been out of it now for quite some time. And my goodness, and I follow counsel fairly closely because of the activities that I do, uh, but I'm not in the loop on on the specific issues. And I'm sure Terry wouldn't be either, so there would be a learning curve all over again. So it really is a pro forma. And, uh, and by the way, even though this rule is in place, um, and we're not the only community that has ignored it, by the way. Uh, one neighboring down the street, uh, St. Catharines, I believe, in the same situation, they've ignored it as well. There is no penalty for not adhering to this rule. So there's, there's a downside in terms of expenditure. And, and sort of a pro forma kind of uh, token representation. Uh, and there's no great upside. So if I were making a decision, I'd let common sense rule rather than the rule rule, if you know well, what I mean. And they're, they're, I think we're on the same page when it comes to this. And, and again, you're absolutely right. I, mean, I worked with Terry for, for three years, uh, uh, way back in those days. We were both representing Ward 7 at that time. And, yeah, Terry, Terry would do an outstanding job. We know that. Uh, if he's even interested in the job, but but the, the, what, the question I have is, what job is there to do right now? Uh, you know, I mean, let's face it. If, if you have an issue as a resident of any ward in the city, uh, your first order of business, you call your counselor, and the administration staff of that counselor's office uh, will pass the message on. But more often than not, they pass whatever your concern is on to city staff, whether it's public works or or whatever it might be, and they're the ones that will work on the issue. And that that process is still in place. 
So, I mean, unless you want to, you know, the old adage, okay, I want my counselor to come and see that there's a crack on the sidewalk. Uh, all you have to do is report it, and the work gets done. I mean, there's there's really nothing here for them to do. And I know that some people are going to say, oh, I guess we don't need to counselors at all. Well, not to do that sort of stuff. Not to do the sort of stuff that needs to be done between now and Election Day in October. I really don't see that it's necessary to fill the seat. And, and I, I'm wondering why there's even a second thought going on here. Um, well... <laughs> So first of all, my reaction is uh, don't say it too loudly that it's staff that does most of the heavy lifting uh, because these counselors, of course, are out there telling a, a, a different story. And, and, I, and I'm saying that only half-jokingly because it's on those issues where a message goes to the appropriate, from the counselor's office to the appropriate staff and the deal is done and the counselor simply finds out about it and the counselor appreciates it. We want our counselors, obviously, to be informed of those things but also to worry about the bigger picture, the bigger issues, uh, you know, uh, propelling this community forward. Uh, but I suspect uh, that, um, that the reason this is being looked at again is that rather than council having made the decision and left it at that, they try to cover themselves by asking permission from the minister to uh, approve their decision. And, of course, the minister cannot do that because the without a change in legislation because the legislation says, look, you got to do this. This is what you should be doing. There's no penalty if you don't. Uh, and I think especially this government, perhaps, uh, would understand that at this stage of the game, if you're going to save even a few thousand dollars, ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000, whatever that is, it's probably worth saving uh, the taxpayers' money rather than going through the motions for the reasons that we stated earlier. So it's being looked at again, because rather than simply having made the decision and leaving it, they wrote that letter. And, of course, they got a, no, we can't do that, so now it's back on their table. Well, and, of course, what else choice? You know, you're right, the minister has no other choice. The, the law is the law. Uh, and, and, you know, it is what it is, and they can't do anything about that. Uh, but the problem here is is the, 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 the law that they're referring to here about filling the seat uh, is very vague. I mean, there there is no uh, allowance for any circumstance like this. This is un. This would work beautifully in in the past, as it has, Larry. For instance, when like when Scott Duval, since we're talking about Ward Seven, uh, decided to run for a federal seat just a couple of months after the he was reelected as a city councilor. There's still three and a half years left in the term. Of course, you had to fill the seat. And we've had other situations where bylaw by elections have gone in place, and, and there have been bylaws. And I told Donna Skelly got there, in fact. Exactly. But but this there's there's no allowance for what's happened now. Having an election this close, I'm saying Catherine's council was, as you mentioned, in the same conundrum, and they simply said, "Look, it's ridiculous to do this and to, to throw somebody in there for the sake of about six weeks, which is yeah. really all this really as much time as is left." And I'm assuming, by the way, that the person they would appoint is not somebody who's running for office already, if they were going well, to do that. Well, there is one councillor who's running for office, not in that ward, in another ward, and saying, no, you've got to appoint. Uh, and, um, and in fact, uh, he's, I think, unless I misread it, uh, he's a fellow that came in second to Donna Skelly, and he's saying, I came in second, and so you've got to appoint me. I may be wrong about that, so I'll apologize to John Paul if I am wrong about that, but I, just, I, I think I remember reading, reading just that. And, of course, that, that is a little self-serving if that were the case, uh, although a case could be made that the runner-up should have priority because he's been to the polls and people almost elected that runner-up. And that might make sense, except that there is this election happening in a few short weeks that will officially 
and legitimately appoint an elected representative for that ward. And so I think common sense again should uh, should uh, be the order of the day. Well, and any time council has had to go down this road, they tend to want to do it in, under the proviso that, look, it, you're not going to run for the seat. Uh, because that gives somebody an unfair advantage. And I, I think that has to still be a factor in, in what they're going to do later on today, that uh, that it's somebody who's who maybe is capable of doing that if they're going to do this, uh, and, and that's what you want, or just have a full-out by-election, and, and they're certainly not going to do that. But why then, as you say, incur an additional cost for somebody who's really not going to do a whole lot of anything? And and now look at it, I'm not going to start slagging counselors and say they don't do any work at all in the summer. But like every other place, there are holidays, uh, there's a lot more golf that goes on, and, and, and staff are still there to cover everybody, so the work still gets done. So I think we need to deal with that reality right now. I can, I, I'm with you, Larry. I understand some people's angst about this, because they may be under the impression that, look, at you know, if, if my counselor's not there, nothing's going to get done. My, my street's not going to get uh, cleaned up. My garbage isn't going to get collected. Uh, yes, it will, and that's what staff is for, and that's a, that's that that's that rowing versus steering argument that that we've had at council and in in municipal politics. I think from day one. Yes, yes, and and uh, you know I can think of uh, a few um, exceptions to that rule where uh, political oversight um, uh, is needed um, to deal with whatever issue that might come up. But again, there are some politicians who are elected were either adjacent to the ward or the mayor who's elected by that ward, um, of course, uh, has every legitimacy to, to intervene and try to assist if, if that political oversight is, is necessary. I did get, you know, quite coincidentally, I did get a phone call last week from a constituent who lives in that area who's concerned about a... And, and uh, I was on vacation last week, so I, I, I'm, I'm going to be talking to him today who's concerned about a school board school expansion and thinks that a political representative might be able to assist him, uh, whereas uh, the school board seems to be ignoring uh, his pleas for, for some response to some concerns that he has. Now, there is a case, and that's what I'll be telling him. There is a case where let's get a hold of the local politicians if one isn't appointed, um, and, and they will, I'm sure, intervene appropriately even though it's a school board issue and they are their own masters, as it were. Um, but if there needs to be some political representation, that, that still could happen uh, with either the mayor or one or two of uh, the other politicians. But to simply go forward and uh, appoint, uh, because you've got this rule with this huge gaping hole in it uh, that doesn't consider common sense issues of timing such as this presents, um, I think would be would be wrong. I mean, at the end of the day, nothing is going to crumble. Uh, the city's not going to go broke. Um, it, it, it's not going to be the end of the world. But it just doesn't make sense. And for those who are pay attention to things that need to make sense, I think there'd be some disappointment. Well, and uh, we'll end this conversation the same way we began it by by really questioning why they're doing this because they seem to have already settled this issue. And I get, of course, they get pushback. But I'll just remind the counselors that if you're trying to please everybody, you end up pleasing nobody. Uh, so do what you think is right. Uh, that may be the best tack to take. Larry, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. Thanks, Bill. Former Hamilton Mayor Larry Deany. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
We uh, mentioned that uh, Premier Ford was in town yesterday, did not meet with any political leaders, not with the mayor, not with anybody on council. But if he had, I'm sure this would have come up. Uh, with the incoming uh, end of uh, cap-and-trade program, uh, the legislation hasn't been passed, but the government's already said they're going to do that, going to kill cap-and-trade. Hamilton is uh, going to lose about $17 million in funding for social housing, as well as some other money, by the way, from some other projects. That's where the money was supposed to come from, and, uh, well, that's creating quite a problem for the city. Chad Collins, City Councilor for Ward 5, joins us on the program to uh, talk about the ramifications. Chad, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Thanks for having me on, Bill. Not the best of news you could have heard on this issue. You and I have had how many discussions over the last couple of years about new initiatives for housing and counting on provincial and federal money for this, and you get the rug pulled out from under you here. Yeah, I think you and I have covered it extensively over the last number of years, and it, uh, you know, we've talked about the long wait list here in Hamilton and, and elsewhere across the province and, and across the country. We've talked about the deteriorating condition of uh, social housing units um, locally, we have almost 6,000 people that are on the wait list. And for those that currently reside in one of our 14,000 units, um, most of those units were constructed in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And so many of the major building components are long past their useful lifespan and need to either be replaced or repaired. So the, the, the um, cancellation of the funding has come as a, as a big shock to us. Uh, we thankfully get to keep those projects that were in the works and uh, I can say that 500 McNabb, as an example, the one that sits uh, at the foot of James Street right on the waterfront, which is completely vacant today, um, and we're in the process of hiring a contractor and, and upgrading that building, uh, that one will receive the funding from the, the previous government. But those projects that were, um, that were supposed to happen over the next three years, as you pointed out, uh, will no longer be eligible for this funding because it will not be made available to municipalities across the province. And that, and that will have a direct impact on our on our residents and certainly our organization from a financial perspective. And and this is not the build new stuff. This is actually fit, trying to retrofit buildings that are already there and in disrepair, right? Correct. There are two different uh, programs. One yeah. was the SHARP. It was the Social Housing Apartment uh, Retrofit Program, I believe. And then they they repackaged the program as, again, for these were for um, large apartment buildings. And, and they were for energy retrofits. So the benefit with the capital upgrades were not just replacing the components within some of these very large and, and old buildings, there were operating savings attached. So when you upgrade the lighting in a building and switch to LED, when you're replacing the HVAC system or you're looking at um, replacing um, you know, windows in a building, all of those improvements uh, traditionally um, have uh, direct correlation to our operating budgets in a very positive way. So we, we not only enjoy the capital upgrades, but we, we also benefit from operational savings. And so there was a really a two-prong um, benefit to the to this fund is specifically that the province had offered. And it's not a new one. It, it, sorry, it is a new one. It's only been around for two years. So we were just starting to enjoy the benefits of of the program when it uh, was pulled by the government. And, and I think you and I have talked about, you know, housing providers just need certainty, Bill. They need to know that going into next year, that resources will be made available by all three levels of government. And of course, the city has invested um, with a major announcement this term. Several years ago, we we earmarked $50 million over the next 10 years above our current operating budget um, for social housing, not just for city housing, but for other affordable housing uh, providers across the city. And that those monies are for new units and for renovations and repairs. And we were looking for uh, comparable investments from both the province and the feds. We were certainly happy uh, to receive the uh, the green uh, energy funds and the, and the SHARP and, and SHAPE funding from the province uh, through 2016 and 17. We were looking forward to these funds in future years. And everyone 
everyone across the country is still waiting for the federal government to live up to their promise of a national housing strategy that not only has uh, new policies attached to the national housing strategy, but we're also waiting for funds attached to that program. And that's something that, unfortunately, I think all municipalities will have to wait until their election starts and they start um, handing out checks or making promises to municipalities to live up to the commitments they made almost four years ago. There's an important part here, and I'm glad you touched on this, because I know I received, and I'm sure you heard about this too, Chad, some criticism when uh, the previous government announced the green energy and the cap-and-trade and, and the money mm-hmm. that was going towards uh, some of these retrofits, and they thought, hey, God, I don't want my tax dollars going to pay for somebody else's air conditioning or better heat. Mm-hmm. But but we're, we pay the bill for this. I mean, this is this is public housing. So if we can reduce those bills, I mean, that that's a benefit to every taxpayer, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and Bill, you, you know, back in 2001, the province downloaded all the responsibilities for social housing onto the backs of municipalities. Yeah. So we were not only then required to pay for all of the capital upkeep, but we're also required to pay for the operating. And local ratepayers are paying tens of millions of dollars, not just for city housing, but for other housing providers to provide a much-needed service. So when these capital improvements are made and there are direct uh, savings associated with those improvements, those savings then are are obviously passed along to local ratepayers. And we're still waiting, you know, for the province and the federal government, as I mentioned before, to live up to their obligations. We're one of the only jurisdictions in the world that has social housing on the backs of of municipal ratepayers. And uh, that system needs to change. And unfortunately, with this recent announcement, and with some of the, you know, some of the things I've read about their their priorities for this term with the new government, uh, social housing doesn't seem to be at or near the top of the list. Well, and that's somewhat problematic. And I guess the other thing that really is is challenging, not just you, but I guess other councils as well, Chad, is when these announcements are made, they're, they're, they're not saying, well, and we're going to replace it with this. They're simply saying you're not going to get the money anymore. And that's problematic. Now, I, and and to maybe to be fair, Maybe there are future announcements coming, but they don't seem to give any indication of this, and that really holds you guys uh, in the lurch right now because, I mean, you've got a budgetary issue because of this. We do, and, and thankfully, you know, we, we hadn't earmarked, um, you know, to be fiscally prudent about the situation, we hadn't earmarked yet those, those dollars to specific projects. So we were counting on them to come our way through uh, calendar years. I think it was 218 to 220. Um, we thought we would be able to uh, look at our current 10-year capital plan and start, um, you know, there is an application process, so there was no certainty to begin with, but there's there's so many dollars allocated to the city of Hamilton, and with city housing Hamilton, if I use them as an example, having half the, the units in the city, you know, we anticipated getting at least several million dollars for, for our local housing projects. And and now that, that's, that those funds have been taken away, now we're left to our own devices, essentially, without the federal government at the table. Um, we're, we're back to our $50 million investment, and the regular annual uh, budget allocations that uh, you know that we we've traditionally had in in the budget for social housing so um, and, and we're forced to look at creative ways and you and I have covered you know some of the the ways and means in which we've tried to co- make up for those shortfalls and that is selling property that's now very valuable in, in areas of the city where you know five ten years ago um, those lands may not have been worth as much as they are today um, looking for partnerships, which obviously is, isn't new, but we've tried to capitalize on the, on that in terms of private sector development. And so we have, um, you know, as you've covered, Pier 8 will have an element of affordable housing. Our Jamesville project will have a uh, private partner, uh, uh, private public partnership element to it, as well as 191 York and the list goes on. And so we're we're keen to try to in, uh, in, entice and attract local investors to the table, get mixed-use developments in place, um, social housing, affordable home ownership, everything in the spectrum there. 
So those creative ways, they, they stretch our dollars and we're able to do more with less. But there's no doubt, you know, taking, uh, you know, whether it's 10, 12, 15, 17 million dollars out of the pot, um, will have a direct impact. That means providing less units for that wait list and, and repairing and renovating less buildings across the city. And and that's the, the fiscal reality that you need to deal with. And, and to your credit, you're right. I mean, City Council in Hamilton has been very innovative uh, with the $50 million, but with other things as well. And I mean, half, you, you've done everything but return empties for the deposit to try to raise money for this thing. Uh, but you still need the province to come to the table here, and the we federal do. government for that matter, too. We do, and they've both been quiet. I mean, well, I mean, it's, it's new in the term, early in the term. So, I, you know, they're, I, I guess the province will have a plan at some point in time to share with us. And we're anxious to see what that is. We're very disappointed in the federal government. I mean, uh, we've asked our staff to come back with a report on housing investments from the feds. And, you know, the early indications are, and we haven't seen the report yet, but the well, early not, Let me put this in context yeah. for our listeners. You yeah. and I attended an FCM, Federation of Canadian Municipalities Conference in Halifax oh, in 1999. Yeah. Yes, we did. 1999. <laughs> and at that time, the government said, yeah, we're going to make a commitment. We'll get back to you on that. It's eight, yep. It's 19 years later and, and nothing. Nada. Nothing no, Nothing it, at all from these guys. It really is crickets. On, on, you know, and, and it has been for almost two decades. And, um, and it's not just Hamilton. You, know, you mentioned FCM. That, that is a collection of municipalities from coast to coast, from Halifax to, you know, to the shores of, uh, of British Columbia. And so all municipalities across Canada have lobbied the federal government to get back into the game. And you know, historically, when you look back over the decades, you know, post-World War II, all levels of government made substantial investments in affordable housing. Uh, there was the baby boom at the time, and so they were forced to deal with a, a growing population and not enough housing stock. And so the loan programs were put in place, grant programs were put in place. That new housing stock then started to age through the 70s and 80s. Some of that housing stock is still in, in place today. And, um, and we're asking the Fed to get back in the game after being absent from the scene for, for 20, 30 years now, Bill. And, and unfortunately... You know, we um, we haven't seen the current government live up to their commitment. They've talked about a national housing strategy. They've talked about, um, you know, it's a, it's a human right in terms of uh, someone, everyone who lives in Canada having uh, appropriate shelter, and um, and and but we've yet to see any financials associated with that. And so I, you know, you and I both know how historically how these games are played. They wait till the last year or eighteen months of the term. And they start making announcements, and unfortunately, I think that waiting game is what we're in store for this term. And we may see something over the next six to eight months as we get closer to their election, where they start talking about then what that investment will look like. Yeah. But until that time, we're we're again back to left our own devices and and forced to deal with the situation on our own. But the problem's getting worse. I mean, you see the numbers on on a monthly basis when you look at some of this stuff. And what's what's the wait time now? Is it still seven eight years here in Hamilton? For affordable depends, housing, yeah, it depends on what uh, demographic you're in. You know, the larger family, where there's not a lot of units for large families. So if someone has three or four children and and it's a single parent or a couple, um, there's just not a lot of housing stock that's been constructed with with you know that many rooms and bedrooms and, and size. Um, we're seeing a, obviously a growing pressure from seniors as as the baby boomers uh, you know um, age locally. That demographic is is starting to grow on the wait list. And so we're, and the number has gone from just in the last 10 years, I think we were at, uh, you know, 34 or 3,500 people on the wait or names on the wait list bill just prior to the last recession that we had in 08 and 09. And we're now up to close to just over 6,000. And that number is trending in the wrong direction. So we're, that, as you, you've just stated, the, the situation is uh, slowly getting worse. And those numbers aren't getting any better. 
and the need is um, you know is just becoming that much more greater. And so that's why I think council was forced to make that uh, the fifty million dollar investment. Um, you know, without our partners at the table, um, we'd be in much more dire straits. And 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 um, so I you know I, I kudos to my colleagues and the mayor and certainly our staff who've been very supportive, and um, and and all local housing providers. Um, you know, and there's certainly stakeholders across the city who have um, you know talked about gentrification that we're experiencing and the rising costs locally of of rent and. You know the displacement of people who can no longer afford to to reside in the city, which is you know five to six years ago we really weren't talking about those issues, but now they're front and center. And um, and and you know providing more affordable housing is just part of that plan to address one of many issues that we're facing facing as it relates to rising rents, gentrification, and the deteriorating um, condition of an aging housing stock. Well, yesterday we, we were talking with one of the Assembly First Nations chiefs, about obviously about Indigenous affairs, but mm-hmm. they were talking about the housing shortage uh, on reserves. And, and of course, mm-hmm. we have Six Nations not too far from us. Uh, as, as daunting as it may sound to have an eight-year wait time here in Hamilton, it's double that on the reserves. It's 16 to 20 years to get affordable housing there. And as he said, they're gravitating to urban centers. And, and you've seen yeah. those numbers already in the Hamilton area. Yeah, we're seeing the migration here, and there's no doubt about that. And as it becomes more costly in the GTA, and their wait list is 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 long as well. We're, we're seeing people, you know, gravitate to to Hamilton because, you know, for as much as our rents are rising, they are not as as high as they are in the GTA. And 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 you know, to point again to the GTA, I mean, Toronto has um, hundreds of homes right now that are in their affordable housing stock inventory that are vacant uh, because they they just can't afford to fix them. So we're we're at a point where they're. Um, you know, we're, I mean, that just, I think, is the poster child for the reason why all three levels of government need to come to the table. They have housing units that they own that are so old and in such a state of disrepair that they're left vacant. And the fact that we would have hundreds in the city of Toronto and, and, and you know, in Hamilton, we're probably in the dozens in our case where homes have been left vacant because it's just, you know, it's $100,000, $75,000 to fix one unit. It just doesn't make financial sense when you can put those same resources into a large apartment building and fix someone's elevator or fix a roof for for a, a multi-res, a high multi-res building. So those are some of the tough decisions that providers are making across the country. You know, and and you know, I I think it's a shame on higher levels of government that we're at the state that uh, these units sit empty when we have such a long wait list. There's a, the ugly word downloading is going to come into play here again. You know it is when, when yep. decisions like this are made. And I know some yep. people get tired of hearing it. It becomes yep. white noise to them. But essentially, it means when the government cuts programs like that, uh, you are still, by law, required to do this. I mean, the city has to do this, but it falls onto property taxes, which means we're all going to have to pay for it now. Correct. And downloading is nothing new for municipalities. We experienced it when uh, Premier Harris was elected in the 90s, and it almost became the new norm as it relates to uh, the relationship between municipalities and the provincial government. And whether it was social housing uh, that was downloaded to us in 2001, ambulance services, uh, the costs of Ontario Works, which thankfully the last government uh, phased in the upload uh, back to them, um, we we continue to see uh, with consecutive administrations. So for as much as I give credit to Premier Wynne and her, her group for uploading OW, we did receive other services, uh, smaller services with smaller costs downloaded to, to Hamilton. And, and I anticipate, Bill, with these early announcements that unfortunately that's probably something that will be back again front and center with uh, Hamilton and others across the province having to grapple with the province stating that they're no longer they no longer desire to pay for certain services. Those costs will now be borne by the taxpayers at the municipal level, 
and there's no, you know, there's no safer municipalities. We are creatures of the province by law, and um, and they have the final say. And so if those costs are downloaded to us, uh, much like these ones here, which would be an indirect form of downloading, we're forced to pay them. Ward 5 Councillor Chad Cullen is going to be a rocky ride, Chad. Thanks for the time Absolutely. and the information today. Thanks, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's not been a good week for Andrew Scheer either, the leader of the Federal Conservative Party. Uh, things have really kind of gone unhinged up in Ottawa over the last couple of days. Uh, Tim Harper uh, writes about this. Tim, of course, freelance writer and editor. Uh, the article is called Conservative Eruptions Are a Gift for Justin Trudeau's Liberals. Tim Harper joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Good morning, Tim. How are you today? I'm good, Bill. How are you? Well, you're doing better than Andrew Scheer, I guess. Uh, <laughs> did you see this coming? Well, uh, when you're dealing with Maxime Bernier, I suppose you should just expect the unexpected. So, uh, you know, this is not the first time he's uh, seemed to just uh, uh, either try to provoke a response from the leader or uh, or, or, or try to blatantly undermine uh, Andrew Scheer. So it, I don't think anybody was particularly shocked. Uh, the timing is, is curious, but, uh, you know, I'd, I'd love to be inside that caucus room uh uh, when they have that meeting in Halifax next week before the policy convention, because uh, there's a lot of colleagues uh, uh, of Mr. Bernier's who are not very happy with him. This is probably the last thing this party would need at any time, but particularly now when they're trying to uh, craft policy and uh, provide a, a, a united, cohesive front going into uh, uh, the last uh, session before an election. Well, I mean, if 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 Scheer was looking for any indicators, I know there's no cliche. The writing was on the wall. The writing was on the book. Uh, Bernier's yep. book that came out. I mean, he essentially said that he stole the leadership from Bernier by hiring what did he call them? Fake conservatives. Fake to, conservatives to, to... Uh, in Quebec. Uh, no, look, uh, there's no secret here. Uh, Maxime Bernier has never uh, uh, accepted defeat, essentially, uh, and. It, you cast your mind back to May 2017 at the convention in Toronto. It, it was uh, this was Bernier's um, uh, all the way until until people voted, and he uh, he got 49 percent of the vote. So, you know, the, I, I guess that's always the danger when you have a leadership uh, convention, uh, a leadership race that is uh, so narrowly um, uh, the winner uh, wins by such a narrow margin, but. You know, my sense is that the caucus is behind Sheer here. They've actually um, performed well as an opposition party. They've got a good front bench. They've got an experienced front bench, and, and the, they, they've changed the uh, debate on a couple of key issues. So uh, they very much want to put this behind them. Um, but I should point out, as you know, uh, it's, Andrew Sheer can't just fire him. He can't mm-hmm. just say, okay, that's it. Uh, go uh, run your full leadership campaign in exile. Um this has to come from caucus, and they're the only major party that has accepted these uh, these rules that were uh, introduced actually by a member of the caucus, Michael Chong. Uh, and essentially, it makes it difficult for Sheer to deal with dissent because he's got to get the caucus together, and the caucus has to decide that they want to hold a vote to see whether they uh, want to expel Bernier. So in the meantime, uh, Sheer's got to dance. Has Bernier changed that much over the years, Tim? I mean, from all the times that you've covered these things, and uh, they're the... 
I, I you know you know when he was a minister in the Harper government, I mean, he was a bit of a, a maverick, obviously, for a variety of reasons. But he well, seemed to other, other than leaving the briefing book. Well, there's that. Know. Sure. Okay. <laughs> I knew you were going to bring that up. Uh, but 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 I mean, you know, it's, Harper seemed to keep. Well, I guess Harper kept everybody under his thumb. I mean, nobody really stepped out of line, and if they did, uh, as you say, the justice was swift. Uh, but he just seems as if he's got the impression now that he's got free reign to do what he says and and say whatever he wants to say. I think. Well, look, he's he's testing uh, Andrew Shear quite clearly. Sure. Uh, and let's be honest. Well, one of the problems that Shear has is that he's just, you know, Maxime Bernier is not just some, uh, you know, uh, offside backbencher who uh, has uh, bozo eruptions. He has a lot of uh, backing, particularly in Quebec. Um, he's raising issues that I uh, dare say are popular with some conservatives. So. You know, you got. If you're Andrew Shear, you got to be kind of careful about uh, um, taking this guy on. Uh, it's one thing to, you know, expel uh, Lynn Bayak, the uh, the senator with her uh, uh, her racist uh, website. Uh, it's another thing to take on Maxine Bernier. So, uh, you know, Andrew Shear does find himself in, in quite a tough spot, and this is really a test of his leadership because, you know, he's decentralized. Uh, unlike Harper, he's uh, they don't have the same tight message control, and I think uh, most of his caucus welcomes this. But, you know, there was some merit in how Stephen Harper centralized everything because you didn't have this happening uh, with any, certainly with no reg- any regularity while Harper was leading that party. But but the, the rest of the caucus have to know that. I mean, Shear's twisting in the wind right now. And I think they want to back him. Um but it's going to take a, a majority. The question would be whether the majority of the conservative caucus is going to come down to deciding, do you want to keep this guy inside your tent or outside your tent? Where is he going to do more damage? But but you're right. I mean, as you mentioned, because of the, the, the party constitution, Shear can't make that decision like other leaders have done in the past about simply booting him out of the caucus. But even if he had that power, though, Tim, given the fact that half the people at that convention voted for Bernier, and given the fact that he still has some muscle in Quebec, and there's an election coming up in a year, yep. it would be it would be well pound wise, but penny penny wise rather than pound foolish to act, to actually get rid of this guy because he still swings a lot of weight in the party. Well, you might be right, and uh, you know it's a, it's an open question, and I'm uh, I'm not sure to be honest with you, Bill. It would be the best uh, course of action for sure, but um, if you don't boot him. Uh, there's, there's, he's not going to stop. He's made it clear. I mean, Shear issued a statement uh, uh, Wednesday evening, and by Thursday morning, Maxime Bernier was was responding to the statement and taking him on, and said he'll continue to speak about issues like diversity and um, you know he, he, he said some very unpopular things in Manitoba about a uh, an honor for a Pakistani Canadian. I mean, he's uh, he, he's very, very difficult for Sheer to deal with, and you know this is not like um, this is not like a a a, a, a Martin fight or even a a Mulroney Clark. Uh, you, know, you remember Mulroney dealt with uh, any lingering support for Joe Clark by making him the uh, foreign affairs minister and getting him out of the country. Um, you can't do that when you're in opposition, right? Uh, he's there, and uh, he's going to be a force to be dealt with. 
but but again, you have to wonder about how Sheer is handling this because obviously the focus now has shifted from uh, Bernier's tweets and actions and his comments from earlier in the week, and of course his response to Sheer's leadership capabilities. And and again, uh, you have to wonder about the ramifications with an election coming up here. Uh, you got to know, and I know that uh, in your piece today, you're talking about how the prime minister has already responded. To this this is this is this is just a gift from uh, from heaven to you know to say all of a sudden, look at this guy showing how weak he is. You want this guy to run the country? I, well, I, not, I can see this thing writing itself. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's too easy for the Liberals. Um, it, it's when you, you talk about, you know, too much diversity in the country, uh, what you're doing is you're, you're raising um, that whole specter again of, you know, the, uh, the, the, the way the, in the dying days of the Harper government, the, uh, the cop and, uh, you know, the snitch line and mm-hmm. then the, the Kelly Leach uh, values test. Uh, and it's just, way too easy for the prime minister to say well you know i guess they haven't changed all that much from the harper years which uh, paraphrasing i think is almost exactly what he did say yesterday um and why wouldn't the liberals uh take advantage of this you know this is uh, again when we talk about timing uh this is a conservative party that has kept pace according to the polls uh with a, a liberal majority government that is uh let's be honest is teetering is um doesn't have a lot uh, a lot to put in the window right now and needs a, a, a reset. And people are, I, to the extent that people know Andrew Scheer, people are going to start having, having to look at Andrew Scheer as a potential prime minister. Um, so to have him kind of twisting now because of this Bernier thing is, is, is damaging to him uh, and his image, but very damaging to the conservative brand because it does conjure... Um, very fresh memories of these wedge issues, um, and it's hurting. Um, when Bernie goes on about you know diversity and so on, it's hurting gains the conservatives are making uh, in immigrant um, uh, communities among immigrant voters who are happy that they've blown the whistle on the asylum uh, uh, seeking crisis or challenge, whatever you want to call it, uh, because they don't look kindly at what they believe to be Q jumpers because they've, they've gone through the process. The Conservatives are courting support in that voting um, constituency, and Bernier is undermining it. What does this do to conservative branding, though, Tim, when you look at this? And, uh, you know, to go back a, a generation or two, I mean, traditionally, you know, immigrants, et cetera, and, and ethnic populations tended to support liberals. And, yep. and and the Harper government, especially in their first term, I, I thought made a very concerted effort to try to reverse that. I mean, Jason Kennedy played a lead role in that in, in basically saying, no, we, we don't hate you. Uh, we're with you. We're one of you. And it worked. Uh, and, and Kenny's got to be looking at what Bernie's doing right now and said, God, you're blowing up everything I've done. Yeah. Um, Kenny uh, would not uh, uh, be a, a fan of Bernie in any way, shape, or form. Um, but it's funny, it's interesting you mentioned uh, Jason Kenny. Uh, you know, we could have him leading uh, Alberta yeah. uh, going forward. Uh, so, again, you know, when you talk about the conservative brand. Uh, I mean, there are there are markers set up that uh, we could be looking at a much more competitive election than I uh, initially thought because you know he moved carbon uh, a carbon tax uh, as a central uh, debate during the campaign, and the conservatives would have uh, Doug Ford here in Ontario and Jason Kenney in Alberta uh, muscling up with them, uh, creating quite a challenge for the Trudeau Liberals. So you know, uh, it's. Uh, it's a it, it's something I think Sheer has to deal with uh, a little more 
much more forcefully than he is now because uh, you're right. Uh, it, instead of talking about Bernie and why he's doing it, people are now start, starting to talk about Shear's leadership. And, uh, you know, this is on the eve of a, a major convention. I, I mean, it's fascinating to watch this. I mean, you know, we've had conversations over the last couple of months about about the challenges facing Trudeau for re-election, and, and I don't know that we would have had that conversation a year ago, but, you know, the backlash about pipelines in British Columbia, yep. and is he going to lose seats there, and, and, and as you say, the, what, the change in government, the potential change in government anyway in Alberta, and if Kenny yep. is, is there, uh, the Saskatchewan situation right now to do with carbon taxing and, and the lawsuit that they say they're going to bring. Uh, whole kinds of problems, but now all of a sudden... Uh, <laughs> You've got what's going on in the Conservative caucus with Bernier and with uh, with uh, Andrew Scheer. You've got Jagmeet Singh fighting with Rachel Notley, and it's it's almost like all of a sudden the opposition is starting to blow themselves up. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, uh, there's there's gifts being given to the Liberals uh, uh, on all sides. You're absolutely right. Uh, the other problem Andrew Scheer has, though, is if you look at polling numbers, the party polls well. He's polling far behind Trudeau in terms of who would make the best prime minister or leadership skills. But there's also uh, a huge swath of uh, voting, the voting public, if you believe these polls, who really don't have an opinion about Andrew Scheer. They're not quite sure who he is, which is not rare for an opposition leader who's just you know barely a year in the job. But if you don't have an opinion about him, and now you're starting to read this stuff, this is how you're going to form an opinion about him. And that means a lot of good work that he's done over the past year is really going to go for naught if this is how... He's going to be defined in the public uh, public view. Stephen Harper was in a similar situation, though, wasn't he? Way back in the day, though, Tim. I mean, not too many people knew him, and the party was polling ahead of, of his popular numbers at that time, too. That's right. Um, you know what? I was thinking this week. I can go uh, back a little bit further because you know we're talking about Bernier, but there's also been uh, some really outlandish uh, charges and claims made by other conservatives this summer uh, via social media and. It kind of reminds me of the problem Preston Manning had when uh, he had a fresh caucus of uh, of uh, new uh, Reform Party MPs and try as he might to moderate the party uh, in the public eye. <laughs> Somebody would talk about you know putting a, an employee of color in the back of the uh, in the back of the uh, the store if he ran the store or something like that. There was always something would pop up and then he'd have to deal with that again. And you know, sheer giving this much leeway to um, uh, messaging from his MPs, uh, they might they may like freedom, but some of them are actually abusing the freedom. And, and and you know, as I say, as we've been saying, you get back to that whole question then of uh, the potential damage to the brand. And uh, you know, we all complained in Ottawa about the message control coming from Harper. We didn't like it as journalists, but it had certainly had its place and its effectiveness in terms of caucus uh, cohesiveness. But how does how does a guy like Andrew Shear bring them back and then, in other words, crack the whip on them? I mean, he, they they've got the free reign and, and you know and the Shannon Stubbs and, and Blaine Calkins and folks like this that have figured, hey, I can do this now. He's letting Bernie get away with it, and he's letting me get away with it. How do you how do you bring them back in and said, no, 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 you got a guy that's got to toe the line? Well, I think he's got to lay down the law. I think he's got to uh, let it be known that uh, you, you know he was talking in Regina about. Um, Every, I've told everybody we want to pull together as a team. You, what you do is, is the best way to do it is, is to convince your people that this is the path to power. Um, and that's what they're there for. That's what they're looking for. Um, so he has got to reiterate uh, the obvious political 101. Uh, we have a 
a message, and this is our message, and we're not going to go off message or we're not going to find power. Uh, and if they can't find that kind of discipline within, then they don't deserve power. Well, as you say, uh, when they meet out on the East Coast uh, later on, uh, the best, the, the most interesting conversations are probably going to be the ones held behind closed doors. Oh, this is going to be very fun. <laughs> if, you like politics, if you like politics, this is going to be a good time. Uh, well, it's, uh, it's going to be red meat for an awful lot of folks that write about this stuff like you, Tim. Yep. I look forward to those conversations and those columns. Thanks again for today. Have a great weekend. You too, Bill. Thanks for calling. Tim Harper, freelance writer and editor. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.